Tonight, I want to open up with you guys to Psalm chapter 2. I think Ben, at the very beginning of this semester, may have started in Psalm chapter 1. We're going to look at the, at the second psalm tonight. I don't know what you guys think of, uh, particularly at the end of a semester like this, when you've, you've read psalms uh, all semester and you've studied them, you've dissected them. We're about to talk about one tonight. Um, that's appropriate. It's good. But it's also kind of strange. Um, psalms are songs. But that's what they are. Um, they're meant to be sung. They're, it's Hebrew poetry. It's, it's divinely inspired music. And uh, so we read them, but, but they're meant to be sung. And uh, songs, any, any song, they're meant to shape us. They're meant to change us. Not only the way we think, but the way that we feel. Uh, they're meant to shape the things that we long for, that we desire. Um, and, uh, and so and the Psalms do exactly that. Some of those Psalms, I'm sure some of the Psalms that you've already studied uh, and considered as a group are, are prayers, right? They're songs that you sing directly to God. You, you speak to him. Others are psalms that are, spitting, are, that, are, that, are, that are not directed to God directly, but are about God. And we do this when we sing any songs, right? When you gather for worship, sometimes you speak directly to the Lord. Uh, you give him praise. You give him thanks. You confess your sin. You confess your faith. Other times you simply sing about God, right? And in those songs, you're extolling his glory. You're extolling his character. You're, you're telling one another in your psalms or in your songs about who God is. And that's what Psalm 2 does. It's not a psalm that's directed towards God. But it's a song that's meant to be sung about God. And uh, like any song, it, it shapes the way that we view life. This psalm doesn't just, isn't just intended to, to shape the way that we view God and the way that we view Jesus. But in particular, this psalm is really meant to shape the way that we view the world that we live in. That's what this psalm is about. I think that uh, kind of Ben, a couple weeks ago maybe, gave you guys a talk to you about how... Uh, you know, we, we can think of psalms not so much as mirrors that we want to look into to see ourselves, but windows that we want to look through to see somebody else, to see Jesus, to see God, right? I um, also want you to think about psalms as lenses, right? They, we don't just look through them, but they actually help us to see. I wear contact lenses. If I didn't have my contact lenses in, I'd... I'd see you, but you'd just be like big blurs. Like I, I wouldn't know who any of you were. I'd have to get like way up in Sean's business to be, oh, hey, it's you. Um, so, uh, some of you wear glasses. If you take your glasses off, right, you could see the world, but you can't. It's all fuzzy. It's blurry. And the Psalms, when we put them on, they're like lenses, all of scriptures, like a lens, right? We look through it. It helps us to understand, to make sense of what we see. And in particular, in Psalm 2, 
where we live. So uh, let, me, let me read the psalm for you, and then uh, we'll pray. Psalm 2, I think it's there in your bulletin uh, if you want to look along. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us? He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Gracious God and heavenly father, you are the king of kings and Lord of lords. And we ask tonight that as we consider your word, you would help us to behold more of your power, your majesty, of your strength and your glory, but also of your mercy, your kindness, your long-suffering, and your love. And we ask this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So if you go to the store and you buy a coconut... It's just like what I consider a coconut. It's got a thin little shell. Doesn't take much to break through it, right? Uh, but a, but a, a real coconut, it's got this giant husk on the outside of the shell. I have many fond memories as a, as a kid, but uh, one of my gr- favorite memories was as a freshman in high school, we took a vacation to Hawaii. And it was the first time I ever saw a coconut that wasn't really a coconut. Like, what is this thing? You mean inside of that is a coconut? And so, curiously, I, uh, I was eager to rip into it and opened it up. But uh, the one that I found was just green as can be. Wasn't ready to come apart. And so here I was, this uh, stubborn, obstinate freshman in high school who uh, wanted to open this coconut and uh, basically for an entire day fought with it. I carried it around a national park. We like literally walked around a volcano and I like carried a coconut in my hand. It's like throwing it against the ground, like trying to create ancient 
tools with one rock and another, sharpening them to try to open up this coconut. And my family kind of just laughed at me and chuckled and watched and, uh, as, uh, as I battled this coconut. Uh, they recognized the futility of my actions, and apparently I was the only one who didn't. Eventually, kind of my, my dad laughed at me and just kind of said, hey, why don't you put the coconut down and come join the family? Uh, eventually I did. I threw in the towel. I acknowledged uh, the futility of my efforts. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is about futility. In particular, it's about the futility of opposing God and his anointed Messiah. This psalm is intended to to put the, the world's events, really all of human history, the news that we watch, the politics that we consider, it puts all of that in perspective. I get overwhelmed sometimes when I turn on my computer, when I watch TV. If God is God, if he really is the rightful king of all that is, then why do so many people oppose him? Why does he put up with the mockery, with the talk? Why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he act? Why doesn't he stand up for himself? Why doesn't he reveal himself? Or perhaps a better question is, does he want me to do those things? Do I need to to stand in the gap and kind of come to his defense? And that's what this psalm is all about. The psalm, you'll notice, begins by describing the world that we live in. A world in which nations rage. In which peoples plot in vain. Not just against one another, but against the Lord. Against the creator of heaven and earth. And against his anointed. Against the Messiah, Jesus. A world in which kings and rulers, people of importance of education, gather together in order to conspire, to conceive, to plot. It's the world we live in. A world that is eager to declare that God is dead, God is not great, religion poisons everything. It's part of our political discourse It's part of our philosophical discourse. It's part of our scientific discourse. And it's not new. It's the part of the, it's the language of history. The psalm enters into that reality. At the heart of human opposition to God we see in the very beginning of this psalm is simply an unwillingness to submit, to bow our knee, an unwillingness to acknowledge that there is someone to whom we are accountable to as humans. In fact, that's the very 
heart of sin. Sin is a refusal to let God be God. The refusal to let him, or anybody for that matter, rule over us. Tell us what to do. Have any say or authority in our life. And so the greatest revolt, the greatest revolution of all is against him. But of course, when people rage against God, they don't just raise their fists kind of this to this invisible deity in the sky. Their anger, their fury, their frustration, all of that plotting and scheming is typically overflows and it's poured out against other people, against men and women who are actually created in his image. It's turned into violence and hate speech and anger and slander. We raise our fist at God, but we use our fists against one another. And all that of violence, all oppression, really, to a certain degree, one, one degree or another, is simply a raging at God. Even the violence done in the name of so-called gods. In the name of Islam is a raging at the one true and living God. This violence, this anger, doesn't just fall upon men and women in general, created in the image of God as we all are. But more particularly, it tends to fall upon his people, his church, his body, his bride. Those who are called by his name, who bear that name. And perhaps you've been raged at before. Perhaps you've been mocked. Or perhaps you've simply been dismissed, ignored, overlooked because of your faith. In the classroom, in the dorm room, in the courtroom, in the media, we experience it, we hear it, we feel it. It comes in many different forms. And this psalm is is brutally honest about life in that sort of world. Tells us to expect to live in that sort of world. A world because of sin that rages against God. A world that is full of people that are plotting But the psalm doesn't simply draw our attention towards this reality. The psalm, more than anything, helps us make sense of these experiences. It helps us make sense of this by pointing out the folly of the world's rebellion. The psalm begins by saying, why? Why? 
Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot invades? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord? Why in the world would they do that? If you look at the next two stanzas, you see the absolute folly of this. Verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord, just to see it, has to look down. Has to bend his ear to find out what they're saying. Then, after he's listened, after he's looked, then the Lord will speak. He'll speak to them. He speaks to them in his wrath, in his fury, and the voice is terrifying. The psalm you see between stanza one and stanza two calls us to look at the exact same experience from a completely different perspective. First, we look at it from the perspective of the world. The world that we typically see, that we witness. But now we're called upon to think about this from the perspective of heaven. From an eternal perspective of of what is really going on. And God simply says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It may feel like the world is gaining ground. It may appear that the nations are gaining strength in their opposition to God. But he still sits in heaven. He laughs. The world has no more ability to remove Christ from his throne and to thwart his plans in history than I did to open that coconut. I felt like I was making progress. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was abusing that coconut. I was, there was holes in it. There was, there was dents. There were scratches. If you looked at that coconut, it was ugly. But I got nowhere. Nowhere. The psalm doesn't just give us a perspective from heaven, but it gives us a perspective from the future. A day in the future when a God who is silent will finally speak. And in verse 7, we hear not only the voice of the Father, the voice of God on the matter, but we hear the voice of Jesus, the Messiah. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, this is the Messiah speaking, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Multiple times in the New Testament, this very verse is quoted As God speaks from heaven at Jesus' baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And we see as as we look at this psalm that it's the very decree of God that the nations, all the nations of the earth will be given to Christ as his inheritance, as a gift all the ends of the earth as a possession. 
But then in verse 9, we see a, a picture. And it's not our normal view of Jesus. It says, you shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We normally view Jesus as this one who is meek and mild, merciful and gentle. But here we have a picture of a warrior king, of one who's preparing for battle. The Messiah will return, and when he does, it will not be in gentleness and mercy. It will be with vengeance and with fury. Verse 9 is actually quoted three times in the book of Revelation. It's an image that the Apostle John gives us of Christ as he returns in his glory to earth. The Messiah will will come to a God-hating world, a world that opposes him. And that day, Christ will return. And the psalm gives us a clear view of the future. It calls us to think about the world not only from the perspective of heaven, but from the perspective of the future. It shows us what will happen on that last day when Christ returns. But the remarkable thing is that we don't see God. We don't see his anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, dealing with his enemies or his detractors this way right now. We see him mercifully waiting. We see him in heaven, simply listening, restraining himself, letting the nations rage, letting the people's plot, letting them scheme. And why? Why? Why does God not immediately rise to vindicate the glory of his name? To declare the truth and the character of who he is? Because he's merciful. Because he's gracious. He's longing. He's inviting for those very kings who set themselves up against God from all of humanity, from the highest to the lowest, to turn. Right now, he's showing mercy. He's waiting on us. He's inviting us to put down our weapons. He's giving them a chance to surrender, a chance to wake up, a chance to see the futility of their own warfare. You know, sometimes I think as Christians, so often we live with our heads down. We, kinda, we can't see past the world as it is right now, as it exists right around us. And this psalm, it calls us to lift our eyes, to turn our gaze to the future and to heaven. Is this the view of the world that you have? When your God is mocked, when you are mocked, 
when his word is violated, when it's cast aside by the society in which you live? Does this vision of his patience, his mercy, his strength, and his glory, the vision that you have, the early church was a, Christ, was a community that knew quite well what it meant to be persecuted. To not only be mocked and to be outsiders because of their faith, but to lose jobs, to lose livelihoods, to lose their very life for the sake of their confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is the King of Kings That he is the Lord of Lords. And throughout the book of Acts, we actually hear the early church quoting this psalm. Singing this psalm. As John and as Peter are thrown in prison, the church turns to this psalm. And they ask, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? This was where they found their comfort. This is how they reoriented their perspective. But as you see, as we draw to the end of the psalm, that the reason that this psalm wants us to change our perspective, not only about God, but about the world in which we live, is really seen in the very last stanza. Now, therefore... O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. For those of you who are presently living in rebellion to the Lord, in rebellion to his word, who are refusing to acknowledge him as the Lord and the giver of life, the king of kings, the one who created you and who knows what is best. This psalm calls you to lay down your weapons to reconsider your position, to think twice before going to war. Be warned. Be wise. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. In the ancient world, an emperor's or a king's or a ruler's servants would kiss his hands as a sign of their loyalty, of their love, of their commitment to him. And that's the invitation here, is that you and I, rather than raging against God, would reconsider our position and would serve the Lord with fear, would rejoice, would give up our anger for joy, rejoice before him, kissing the sun. But for those of you who have already 
bowed your knee before Jesus, acknowledged him to be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, but you sit and you, you look around at the world, you see it raging. How are we to respond? How do we respond to a world that hates our God, that potentially will hate you? And we respond with the same mercy, the same love, the same restraint that we see in our Heavenly Father. Our desire is that the world would come to experience the love of Christ, that they too would kiss the Son, that they too would find refuge in Him. That's our call as His people in this world to be salt and to be light. If there is ever a time in all of human history in which the nations appeared to prevail over God and over his anointed, it was all the way back in Jerusalem in 33 AD. As Jesus Christ the king, the one who will one day break them with an iron rod, who will dash his enemies to pieces with a potter's vessel, the one who created heaven and earth, entered Jerusalem as its king, riding on a donkey only five days later to be crucified on a Roman cross. It culminated in the conspiracy, in the plotting of leaders and kings, of a man named Herod and another named Pontius Pilate, of the Jews and the Romans together. All their conspiracy, all their plotting, all their, refu- all their refusal to bow the knee to the Messiah. It looked like strength. It looked like Victory. But in that moment in which the King of Kings was at his weakest, crucified on a Roman cross, he was actually at his strongest, defeating all of his enemies, defeating all of your enemies, sin and death and Satan. And on the third day, he rose again from the grave and is now enthroned in heaven as the king of kings. Psalm 2 calls us to look at heaven, to look to the future, to take heart, to be bold in the midst of a world that rages against our God, to be bold and in the midst of that world to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Caesar is not. Jesus Christ is Lord. He reigns. He is sovereign. And our obedience is to him and to him alone. When we see the world turned upside down 
like that. When we view the world from that perspective, when we remember that he is in control and that his Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, is on the throne, then we have boldness to lay our lives down and to love and to sacrifice the world just like Jesus did.